From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and we've been coming to you every week from my office in the Cambridge Politics Department to talk about what really matters in this campaign. In just a couple of weeks, we'll have a result, and we'll be here to try and make sense of it, however long that takes. This week, I'll be talking to the leading technology entrepreneur, Sherry Kutu, about business and its relationship to government. She's the author of the recent Scale-Up report, which identifies the crucial importance for any economy of having businesses that can grow rapidly. The report is rare in having captured cross-party support, though some of its recommendations, including on the need for more immigration, won't sit easily with some politicians. Sherry tells me why speed matters. As an entrepreneur, nothing for me in any industry or anything goes fast enough. And why collaboration with government is the key to success. The government doing something with the universities and with small businesses and large businesses is fantastic. And trying to do anything on your own is an enormous recipe for an expensive disaster. Stay tuned to hear more. talk about how to grow the British economy, I'm joined by our regular news panel, Helen Thompson, an expert on economics, Finbar Livesey on public policy, and Chris Brook on political theory. The current state of the economy has been in the news in the past week, with the IMF chief Christine Lagarde praising the coalition government's handling of the British economy, though warning of further tough choices ahead. As we've discussed before on this podcast, the election campaign has been dominated by arguments about the deficit and the billions here and billions there that politicians can add or subtract from it. Are we missing the wider picture? What are Britain's real economic prospects in the years ahead? And how much are these beyond the power of any politician to control? We haven't had a real conversation about investment. Fundamentally, the UK economy doesn't understand its path to growth at the moment. We have been slipping on our investment in research and development year on year. Public investment in research and development fell below 0.5% of GDP in the last year. We're the lowest in the G8 on this kind of investment. And if you believe, and it's a question whether or not you do believe, that that kind of investment is fundamental to innovation, fundamental to growth, we're going nowhere. Chris, politicians always face these kinds of pressures, though. Any domestic politician knows that something might happen in the international economy, which means that the things that they promised or the things they'd like to do don't become possible over a parliament. They have to spin it in a different way. Is this any different from what any incoming British prime minister might face? You've got five years ahead and you don't know what's going to come up. I think the advantage that Cameron and Miliband have, oddly enough, is that they haven't presented robust, optimistic projections about the economy, economic growth over the next few years. We have been in a world where politicians have been rather good at blaming foreigners for difficulties in the international economy, whether that was California mortgage lenders a few years ago, or much more recently, the Greeks or the Germans, according to taste. Obviously, the domestic programme of a British government may be shipwrecked on the international economy. I'm not sure either the Conservatives or the Labour Party are especially vulnerable, except to the usual frustrations of not really being able to get an ambitious policy programme executed. OK, but I'm aware that even as we talk about this now, it sounds a little bit removed from the cut and thrust of an election campaign. 
these kinds of economic questions are quite hard to translate into campaign messages, whereas tax and spend, deficit, the billion here, billion there, works as sloganeering. Helen, do you think there's anything that politicians could do in this campaign to cut through and get people to wake up to some of the risks that you're talking about here, either the long-term risks or what you might call the wider global risks? I don't think so. And in that sense, I think I disagree with Chris in the sense that the politicians are giving, as he sees it, a rather um, downbeat view of the British economic prospects. I think in many ways they're giving an optimistic view of it in that none of them are talking about the fact which kind of way fits in with Finbar's point, that probably, almost certainly, in fact, during the course of the next parliament, the economy will be in recession again. It would be historically very unusual if that were not the case, given the length of time that has now passed since the last recession. Unfortunately, I think in democratic politics, politicians and voters concentrate on the hard economic problems when there's a crisis, and they're not very good at finding ways of articulating dangers and the problems ahead until that actual moment of crisis arrives. So, Finbar, is this an election between crises? Is that what gives it its distinctive characteristic, that it's somewhere too far from the last one to really focus people's minds, and we don't know what the next one is yet, so we don't know what we should be waking up to. It is between two crises, but I think, as we've spoken about a lot before, and as you can hear in our voices, we're a little concerned with how the parties are framing the conversation. They don't want to get into a more complicated discussion. They don't think, as you said, it makes good electioneering slogans. But at its heart, if we're actually going to have a real conversation about how this country improves, we have to get into that conversation. There are different voices trying to do it. Simon Renner-Lewis at Oxford, a few other places. Um, so just tell us who is Simon Renner-Lewis. So Simon Renner-Lewis is Professor of Economics at Oxford, and he writes a blog called Mainly Macro, and he's very sharp on how these discussions around economics essentially seem to be ignoring the economic evidence as he sees it. One example of this that's relatively accessible, and I don't know whether we as a podcast can recommend other podcasts, but Tim Hartford was interviewed by the Financial Times, and he basically called up Simon Ren Lewis and six other economists and said, OK, if you were in power, what policies would you put in place? And it's very telling that right at the start, he says, I wasn't trying for balance. I've phoned up interesting economists. But nobody mentioned the NHS. Nobody mentioned immigration. Nobody mentioned all the things that are the key electioneering slogans. They all mentioned the things that they thought would actually get the economy back on track, none of which are present in the party's manifestos, none of which are present in the conversation. And yes, we are allowed to recommend other podcasts because people are allowed to listen to two a week, but probably not more than two. So Chris, finally... As Finbar described it, if you ask economists what we should do, they often convey a sense that from their perspective, politics is kind of mad. And you get that not just in this country, you get it in the United States as well. Someone we've mentioned in the past on this podcast, Paul Krugman, who writes a column in the New York Times, his column every week, he writes two, I'd say one of the two every week, is saying that the Republican Party is full of people who are actually mad. But politics itself is insane in its inability to actually get to the heart of the evidence, what we could do, what our real options are. We're not the United States. But do you share any of that frustration of economists? Or do you actually see it from the politicians point of view, which is the economists have no idea what the politicians are trying to achieve, which is to persuade people to vote for them? Yes, I think I'm closer to that latter position. It's easy to despair of politics and condemn everyone as either a knave or a fool. But there are quite powerful reasons why politicians end up pursuing energetically very suboptimal 
often disastrous policies. The Conservative Party and the Labour Party's commitment to an austerity agenda isn't simply the result of the leading economists in the party being idiots. There are quite deep-seated political reasons why they've chosen these strategies. To throw up our hands and just despair of all that, in a way, is to despair of representative democratic politics. That's the political system we've got, and it's a political system that most people, most of the time, are reasonably content to have. But yeah, it comes with a lot of baggage, and some of that are strong pressures towards very poor public policy making. Thanks to Helen, Finbar and Chris. Before we hear from Sherry Kutu about what she thinks can be done to make Britain competitive in the global economy, we asked a few other technology entrepreneurs what they thought government should be doing to keep Britain up to speed. There seems to be a shortage of skilled, you know, like programmers and developers and those kind of people. And the problem is that they're not educating people in order to have those skills. And crucially, they're not allowing people who have those skills to come in from other countries. I think the immigration policy is an absolute joke. There are these highly skilled people. There's loads of people from India, from Russia, from from China, wanting to contribute to the economy. And they're prevented for sort of basic kind of like lowest common denominator, like rhetoric, politics, like artificial targets on immigration. And if, you know, if people saw a few more kind of, you know, guys from India doing these tech jobs, earning 50,000 a year, then they might be interested in learning how to code themselves. There are some examples in education where they're trying to address it by, for example, issuing iPads to the students to avoid having to use textbooks and so on. But I think there are a, a small number of examples that I know of. But, um, you know, maybe it's, maybe, it's, maybe it's happening. Maybe it's happening slowly, but maybe it's happening. I thought uh, they're doing quite well in, uh, in terms of uh, getting more funding and uh, getting, you know, organisation like this uh, to provide a network for people to meet and learn and encourage people to start up new companies. I just don't think they, they, they embrace tech you know, very well at all. When you look at a private company as something as simple as, you know, a supermarket and how, how efficiently they run their logistics and stock... You know, staff management on, on an organisation that's as big as, as big as something like Tesco's or ASDA, they could apply similar types of skill sets to things like the NHS for, 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 for data management and stock control. It, it would save millions. Now to Sherry Kutu, who has been closely involved with many of the world's fastest growing technology companies, including Zoopla and LinkedIn. Her scale-up report was published late last year, and it identified what she called the scale-up gap. That is the gap between the number of fast-growing companies Britain has compared with some of its rivals, particularly the United States, where rapid expansion of successful businesses, along with the rapid contraction of less successful ones, is more the norm. I started by asking her why the scale-up gap matters. In the global scheme of things, our economy is only as strong as the companies which grow it. The companies grow faster, they employ more people, those people pay national insurance, and they spend their wages, and that is what makes the economy work. If you don't have businesses, you have a problem. And if you only have small businesses that are unable to grow because of some issue in your ecosystem, you need to fix that. The good news is that we know what we need to do in 
order to fix it. So the Scale Up Report produced a recipe book of 12 things that we should do in order to eradicate the scale up gap in fairly short order. I think most people are familiar with the phrase startup, and they probably think that what we need to be a competitive economy is lots of startups. Startup is a phrase that's associated with dynamism. What you're saying is it's not about how many companies you start. It's about finding the ones that have the capacity to grow quickly. And government can play a role in that. It's not just finding companies. It's making sure that your environment, your ecosystem is one where companies will grow. Starting companies is actually very easy. One of, one of my analogies is actually pretty easy to get pregnant. It's a lot harder to produce an adult child that is well adjusted at the end of 20 years. It is easy starting things and policies to just encourage the creation of companies are easy. Doing something so that your economy allows companies that have been created to flourish is a little bit harder and they require different policies in order to encourage that growth. The first of which is identifying or allowing the identification of those interesting companies that are growing to be found by others. Because if they can be found by others, then the government could procure from them. Other customers can find them more easily. The most important thing that it would allow those companies to do is to find talented people to work for them. When we asked the companies that are were scaling up what their number one problem was, they were very consistent. 87% of them said, that their number one problem was finding people to work with them that had the skills that they needed. The result of the skills gap was that they were turning down customer orders. That's rubbish. You know, you, you shouldn't be turning down customer orders because you can't hire people. That's an addressable issue. And, and one of the implications of that is therefore for, this, for education, but it also has implications for immigration. Yes. I mean, one of your proposals in the report is that we need to think about this in the context of bringing skills in from overseas. At the moment, the skills don't exist in the UK. It will take a long time for the universities and secondary schools and primary schools to produce the individuals with the correct skill set. And until that happens, do we allow these companies to continue to turn down customer orders or do we allow them to accept those customer orders by hiring somebody from overseas who has the appropriate skill set if they can't find them locally? So I did recommend something called a scale-up visa. It was a little bit unusual in that it said that any company that had been growing growing for three years at 20% per year or more should be allowed to hire whoever they want because they would have gone through processes already such as turning down customer orders and growing for three years. And they probably would have found somebody overseas, made them an offer. In order to make them an offer, they would have had to get board approval. In most cases, if it's a young scale-up company, they would have also had to get shareholder approval. That takes several months. And these highly in-demand individuals are only on the market for 10 days, 15 days. In the UK, we've got 990,000 open positions right now at our scaling up companies. In the US, they have 4.5 million open positions right now, which means that a talented person who has been with a company that's grown fast, when they come onto the market for whatever reason, there is a 
I wouldn't say a bloodbath, but they get taken up very quickly. Frenzy. There's a feeding frenzy. If you are prevented because you can't offer them a visa, I mean, maybe they've got kids. Maybe if it's a woman, she's got a husband. Shifting the family from one country to another country is difficult enough psychological thing for any family to get over. But then the lack of certainty on whether or not they will get a visa kills things. So we've said that they should do what they do in Canada, which is a 15-day window on if the company that asks is a scaling up company and they found someone, they can have them within 15 days. And that would break the back of the skills crisis, stopping our companies from growing faster and from flourishing here. And so the implication of that is the current immigration rules in Britain standing the way of what you think is the thing that's driving economic growth in this country. The companies that are growing fast are unable to import people here fast enough. There are complications that are often cited with the visas. Um, so yes. Is this primarily about technology or are we talking about industry more generally? I mean, is this is the scaling up mainly happening in the tech industry or is it in services, manufacturing and so on? As part of the scale-up report, we analyzed the top 450 fastest growing science companies. They were growing on average at 92% per annum. Why is very clear. If you've got science, you've got the IP, it's protected, you get the product market fit in one country, and then you rapidly export whatever that solution is to a bunch of other countries. And so science is really, really strong. Manufacturing is beautifully strong, and you can see that in some of the, some of the clusters as well. Most of the scale-ups are not in London. They're outside. I think it was 75 or 6% were outside of London. And I'd say probably more than half are outside tech or what we think of tech and digital. So it's great for our economy. If you think about it, it gives us a better balanced economy. So what you say goes against some of the doom and gloom stories that we hear, one of which is the job of politicians in Britain is to manage the decline of this country in a very competitive international landscape because ultimately we can't compete. Often we hear that manufacturing is inherently in decline. And what you're describing, and we also hear that the City of London is where the action is, not just London, but specifically financial services, or what's driving the British economy. And you're describing something very, very different. You're describing a picture of the possibility of a growing economy and a balanced economy and an economy that's dynamic in a range of sectors. So is what you're describing a possible future which, if we're lucky, we could achieve? Or is what you're describing what's actually happening but we're just not aware of it? I think it's what's actually happening. There's an enormous amount of evidence that, well, that we pulled together in the report to, to show that. I do think that there are some misconceptions and that there are a lot of actions that all of us could take to celebrate the rapidly growing companies around us. We recommended in the, in the report that every school invites the fast-growing companies around them into their classrooms so that the kids can understand, you know, well, what do you do with physics? It's like, well, why don't you ask the people who studied physics within 10 miles of you to see what they're doing with it? We did an analysis by political constituency of all of the companies uh, that were growing quickly in every single, you know, political constituency and local enterprise partnership. If we think about, you know, in the long term, the children who are currently in school have to choose jobs that will be there in 20 years' time. The 990,000 open positions I spoke about, 92% of them are in STEM subjects. That's not the subjects that children are choosing right now in school. And for people listening who don't know the 
phrases that we use in academic life, STEM means science, technology, engineering and mathematics. That's correct. And that's what we need much more of in our education system. The open positions right now from the companies who are trying to hire these people, 92% of them are in science, technology, engineering or mathematics. The students that are graduating from our schools at the moment far less of them are graduating with the with science technology engineering or mathematics and that is what's creating the skills crisis which for me should be the number one issue that all politicians in all parties should be focused on it's long term solving it, do, it takes more than 5 years of a you know of a term of of government but if we don't focus on that problem we will have to manage the decline of the UK because if the company can't hire the skills, then they will not thrive. Or they will choose to operate in environments where they don't have to face those constraints. Many other countries where the skills crisis that we face, particularly in STEM, is absent. Do you think that the politicians that you spoke to as you were compiling your report get this, that this is the fundamental challenge? not just the scale-up gap, but the skills gap. If, if Britain is going to be a competitive economy where people have so many choices about where they locate, where they hire and so on, do the politicians get the challenge? I think the politicians understand that the skills gap is a real issue. And it's well known, the productivity gap that we have in the UK, Nesta did some terrific work that showed that it is costing us $92 billion per annum, the fact that there are these open jobs and nobody to take them. That I think there's general recognition that that's an, an issue. I think seeing clearly how you address that issue is is probably a, a little bit a little bit harder. The you know the report that, that we were speaking about, every politician that I spoke to understood it and praised it. I think it allowed them to see simple things that they could do that could make a real difference. And the real difference adds up to, on a gross basis, one trillion four hundred billion, and on a net basis, two hundred fifty five billion over ten years. If you simply closed the gap that exists now and didn't allow it to get wider, the benefit to the economy would be enormous. And you don't have to spend a lot of money. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Need to get that. You're someone whose background is in the technology industry yourself. You're an entrepreneur. There's often a lot of frustration from people who've worked in technology or people who are entrepreneurs and and are involved in investing in companies and like you say looking at for rapid growth with politics and with government because it seems too slow I mean there are two complaints really either the thought is that politicians are too slow or they're not good at long-term thinking what you've just described is a long-term challenge but it also has some immediate fixes and somehow politicians often seem like they're caught between the two on the electoral cycle they don't think long term but they also don't act quickly enough Are you one of those people who is frustrated by government? Do you see a kind of growing gap between speed, adaptation, experimentation in particularly, but not exclusively, the tech industry and the kind of old-fashioned way that the government goes about its business? 
as an entrepreneur, nothing for me in any industry or anything goes fast enough. I don't feel my companies grow fast enough. I don't feel anything happens fast enough. So I'm generally quite an impatient person. So it's probably um, a good thing that you're not in politics in that case. <laughs> um, well, or maybe actually, you should be in politics. I, I, th- I think the politicians that I've met are often very smart and very ambitious. I was really encouraged by some of the examples that we found in the UK and also outside of the UK of what both local and central government were doing about making sure that the companies would grow. You know, this current governor has made it, they focused on finance, which is a short-term thing. Some of the longer-term levers, such as the schools, haven't, you know, haven't been focused on so much yet. But now I think it is clear and there's a lot of, there's a lot of effort towards changing that. Procurement is something that we could do a lot more of. And the UK is actually way ahead of a lot of other countries on data. The fact that they have released a lot of data puts us in an advantage. I was in the U.S. a couple of weeks ago, and they were very enthused about the data that we have in life sciences and what that enabled us to do. They were amazed that the data that is already released on private companies in the U.K., they don't have a private company database like Companies House in the U.S. That database actually allows us to say to every teacher everywhere in the whole country, there's your fast-growing companies right there. So I think we're streets ahead in in some ways, but there's a way to go. But um, we'll probably be able to get there. Do you think government is good enough at experimenting? You're connected with various companies, including LinkedIn. And I know I've heard you say that when you work with people like that, they think of running five experiments a day and the four that have failed by tea time are killed off. And maybe the five that have failed by tea time are killed off. Do you sense there's any way in which government, central government or local government can be experimental in that way? I'm a huge fan of experimentation, uh, and part of it probably comes from being a scientist. And I don't think of failure as failure. I think we test hypotheses, and some of them don't work. But if we don't share the ones that don't work, we don't move forward as a society. So I know people always get you know excited in the UK about, oh, that didn't work, that person's a failure. It's like, no, that person actually tried something that needed to be tried, and they learned from it. It's only a failure if you don't learn from having tried something, or you don't share what you learned when something didn't work the way that you expected it to. I think that there's terrific innovation in piloting something in one place, seeing if it works, and then rapidly rolling out it out across the country. And I think we would all benefit from that. And does that mean that experimentation should primarily be local? And it's basically a job, one of the jobs of local government to try things out that could then work on a national scale? Because in Britain, local government is not particularly strong. I mean, that's one difference between Britain and other parts of Europe. One of the, one of the lessons from the Scale Up Report is that if you're thinking about local economic development, that happens at a city or cluster level. If you're you know, a local government or person interested in the, you know, your local economy, you want to have the ability to, to make those experiments and to see what works. I also think there's a, almost an obligation at the, at the central level to monitor what's working all across the country so that when you see those experiments that are working, you share them. And that when you see those experiments that didn't work, you also share what didn't work so that all of the tides can rise a bit faster. The coordination and what you can achieve in in collaboration is, is enormous. My favorite stat from the scale-up report was looking at the cost of doing something alone versus the cost of doing something in a collaborative fashion with others. The cost 
cost of doing something alone is 90 times more per job created when it comes to economic development. And so doing, you know, the government doing something with the universities and with small businesses and and large businesses is fantastic. And trying to do anything on your own is an enormous recipe for an expensive disaster. We've had a lot of people on this podcast who've been basically gloomy particularly about politics, actually, in the middle of an election that a lot of people are saying, though they're saying it's the most exciting election for a generation, they also say in some ways it's the most depressing. You sound very optimistic about most things, including about the future of this country and its economic potential. Does any of your optimism get dampened when you look at an election like the one that we're going through at the moment with lots of parties, lots of squabbling, which goes with any election, but also the potential for a lot of confusion because it's not at all clear that we're going to get a clear result. It's not even clear that we're going to get a government for a while. I'm an optimistic person by nature. I always see a glass almost all full as opposed to half full. So it's hard for me to be gloomy. Um, even about politics. Even about politics. Wow. Um, I, think I'm, <laughs> I think I'm optimistic that I, I hope that the victor comes out and it is clear because I'm, I would be sad to see a large delay to all of the things that we should and could be doing to make the UK the best place in the entire world to grow and to scale a business. You know, if if there were protracted confusion, then I think I might become slightly gloomy because there's a lot of levers there that we can pull today and tomorrow and immediately after election that will make a big difference to our economy and the skills that our children learn in schools. And that's that's what I want. I want, uh, I, I want us to have a booming economy that everybody wants to come to and nobody wants to leave. And given what you said about the advantages of doing things in collaboration rather than doing them on their own, one thing that may be going to happen as a result of this election is that we get another coalition government. Is your sense that a coalition government might be the way to get some of these things, this kind of long-term thinking, to happen? I'm not a political commentator at all, uh, so I don't. I don't really know. I know that for the last five years there has been a coalition government, and I come from Canada, which which has had a whole series of coalition governments, and they seem to get things done. So you know, I'm optimistic that whatever comes out, I hope that they're going to focus on the really important things, and I think we know what the really important things are, which include education and skills and making sure that the companies which we're all dependent upon ha- have the best environment to to stay here and grow from thanks to sherry kutu now back to our news panel on this podcast we've tried to touch base with other elections happening around the world to keep the british election in some kind of perspective this weekend the finns went to the polls and it looks like they've elected as their pm a relative outsider the wealthy former telecoms executive Yuhu Sipila, and I hope I pronounced that right, who is promising a technocratic cure for Finland's current economic troubles. And just for comparison, the current Finnish unemployment rate is roughly double that in the UK. Scandinavian countries are often held up by British politicians as role models for what we could do better, particularly on education, where Finland leads the world. Helen, do you think we can learn anything from the Finns, or are we suffering from Nordic envy? I don't think there's anything particularly for us to be envious of Finns at the moment, particularly in regard to economic problems. Again, I think this is an example where if you look at the outside UK election, in some ways it looks rather indulgent. I mean, Finland is a country where the economy has been in recession for three years. She said one in ten of adults are unemployed in Finland. And there's a huge problem that they've got ahead trying to get their wage costs down to make themselves competitive again in the Eurozone. There's a kind of terrible irony in some sense in what's happened in Finland is that they've been the hardest line 
find critics of the Greeks many many ways more so than the Germans. But actually, in terms of wage competitiveness and the conditions of monetary union, the Finns now have exactly the same problem that the Greeks did prior to 2009. And I said they're leading the world in education. Actually, that isn't even true anymore. Finland was always held up as a role model. It now turns out that in certain parts of the Chinese school system, particularly in Shanghai, their results far outstrip what Finland's able to achieve. And when I talk about Nordic envy, I'm probably thinking of TV programs, restaurants, nice knitwear and so on. Maybe we have a rose-tinted view of Scandinavia and what we can learn from it. Our politicians still hold up Swedish models, Finnish models, Norway was set up as the country that Scotland could aspire to be like if it became independent. But Chris, are we actually living in a kind of fantasy land, as Helen described it? We wouldn't want to be like the Finns because their country's in a mess. I think Finland and Scotland is quite a good uh, comparison. They're both about the same size. Four and a half million votes were cast in the recent Finnish election. Scotland has a population of a bit over five million. A Finnish general election is an event of about the same magnitude as a Scottish general election would be were Scotland to become independent. But I do think the Nordic envy is largely rests on illusions. The Scandinavian countries have a very distinctive long-term political historical trajectory through the 20th century, the way key industries and labour markets are structured in Sweden, the way the deep-seated constitutional conflicts have been largely absent from these countries, the way there hasn't been much by way of ethnic conflict. There's a small Swedish minority in Finland. There was the controversy over those islands in the Baltic Sea. But these are countries whose politics haven't been shaped by the kinds of divisions, the kinds of cleavages that have been so important in shaping politics in the 20th century. And these kinds of legacies matter. It's not just a matter of technocratic public policy fixes. Scandinavian social democracy is the way it is for deep-seated reasons. Countries like Britain, countries like America don't find it easy to replicate. And of course, Finnbar, they have a very different electoral system from us. We're often told that our two main parties are losing vote share and they're shrinking as a proportion of the overall vote total. The parties in Finland in this recent election would kill for the kinds of vote shares that Labour and the Tories are going to get. I'll just give you the figures of the four main parties in that election. The winners polled 21.1% of the vote. The party that came second, 18.2%, then 17.6%, then 16.5%. This is multi-party democracy on a completely different model from anything that we've experienced in this country. Absolutely. But proportional representation systems as they exist there and as they exist in Ireland are fundamentally different, have been running for a longer time and have produced, as Chris said, a different type of politic based on the social and economic circumstance. It's really interesting to reflect on what's happened over the life of the parliament around the AV referendum, the alternative vote referendum, as the first attempt to change the first past the post system in the UK. As, forgive me, an Irish person sitting in this context, when I saw what actually went to the referendum, I was pulling my hair out because that wasn't actually a question of fundamentally changing the electoral system. It was just a damp squib. And so you're absolutely right. The distance between what people are talking about as multi-party politics in the UK and actual multi-party politics is huge. Some people think that the betting markets are a surer guide to the outcome than the opinion polls, though Mike Smithson on his excellent blog politicalbetting.com points out that in 2010, the betting markets were way off. They weigh, if, you, if you thought that the Tories were going to do well in that election, you lost a lot of money, and a lot of people did, and they did lose a lot of money. They overestimated the Tory share of seats by about 15 and underestimated Labour by about 30. If that happens this time, Ed Miliband will be Prime Minister. But what the betting markets are suggesting at the moment is that that the Tories are favourite to win the most seats, 
but Labour is favourite to form the next government. That is, Ed Miliband is now favourite to be the next Prime Minister. So there is opening up a gap between the possibility of who will win the most seats and the possibility of who will be the next Prime Minister. And the Conservative press are running on this, and they are pushing the idea that this would be a kind of coup, that the party with fewer seats ends up in Downing Street. Finbar, is it a coup? Um, Of course it's not a coup. The idea that you can't reliably form a coalition across parties who start with the smaller number of seats is silly. It also reflects a lot of the story that's been attempted to be spun here, that the votes that are going to be cast for the SNP and the representatives that come from the SNP are somehow different, that they have this agenda and therefore they shouldn't be allowed into the parliament. The line hasn't been as explicit as that, but that's essentially what's going on underneath the surface. And aren't they different in the sense that the SNP are not standing across the United Kingdom? They're only standing in one part of it? They're different in that sense that they don't have national coverage, yes. But other than Labour and the Conservatives, no other party has full national coverage either. So UKIP is different, Pi Cymru is different, the Greens are different. And we should add no one has national coverage if you include Northern Ireland. And the Northern Irish representatives may well be part of some future government. Exactly. And so what you're seeing is, as you say, the tentative steps towards a different kind of political bargaining to form a government and to form a programme for government. That isn't going to be dictated just purely by, and it shouldn't be dictated just purely by, who had the most seats short of a majority. And Chris, the Conservatives have wheeled out their secret weapons, Sir John Major. doesn't have his soapbox anymore, but he is being asked to spread the word that what the SNP are offering in this election is chaos. Because if the Conservatives do win the most seats, the reason that David Cameron can't be Prime Minister is the SNP would vote down any Queen's speech that he might put before Parliament. Does John Major have any chance of conveying this message better than, say, the Daily Mail? There's perhaps an extent to which he does. Don't forget, in 1992, John Major's Conservatives won more votes than any political party has in any election in this country in its history. John Major speaks from a time when the Conservatives were a genuinely popular party. And also, compared to the current Tory elite, he's not posh. He does come across differently, and I think that will be welcome. Having said that, uh, a lot of voters won't remember his time as Prime Minister. His period after 1992 was pretty consistently disastrous. So he doesn't perhaps speak with that much authority. There's also an irony. His government, towards its the end of its period in office, was dependent on the votes of the Ulster Unionists to maintain its majority. So there is an irony in Sir John Major criticising the Labour Party for possibly being dependent on the support of a regional party. And that's the trouble with politics. There's almost always an irony, and the Conservatives, even this time, may find it comes back to bite them if they end up having to play the game that they're accusing Labour of plotting with the SNP. One thing that I think sometimes gets passed over in this discussion of a coup or the problems of having a government led by a party that isn't the largest party concerns the fact that after the election, the ball is still in David Cameron's court. The decision he gets to make is whether to meet the new House of Commons or whether to resign and let Mr Miliband attempt to form a ministry immediately. If Labour ends up putting together a government, it will either be because the Commons has voted no confidence in Mr Cameron explicitly, or it will be because Mr Cameron preemptively resigned because he knew the House of Commons wouldn't have confidence in any ministry that he led. Those are my reasons, I think, for thinking that talk of a coup is wildly overstated. 
One little part of the polling that has moved a little is the Liberal Democrats are ticking up, perhaps not surprisingly because they were at such a low level, the only way to go was up. But this campaign has given them more coverage, it's given them a little bit of an opportunity to distance themselves from their coalition partner. We're in a seat, Cambridge, that has a sitting Liberal Democrat MP. I have in front of me one of his election leaflets. And if you look at it, you wouldn't know he was a sitting Liberal Democrat MP because it doesn't mention the fact that he's a Liberal Democrat. He is cited, this is Julian Huppert in Cambridge, as a strong independent voice. He's absolutely clear that his main opponent is the Labour candidate, whom he doesn't name. But he's almost running as an independent. And the Liberal Democrats are also hoping that they may buck the polling trends generally by their incumbents being able to position themselves on local issues as somehow separate from the party. Helen, do you have any confidence that independent Liberal Democrats can get away from the Liberal Democrat label? I think that they probably can. I certainly think that Huppert can. I'd be very surprised, actually, if Huppert doesn't win this seat, is is that where the Liberal Democrats are able to present themselves in individual constituencies as both hard workers and having got some track record, which I think Huppert has, of distancing himself from the party leadership, then they're in with a chance. I think that there is another reason, rather than just the local issues, as to why the Liberal Democrats have perhaps picked up in the last 10 days or so. Both the main parties, for different reasons, have given them a centrist space in which to occupy. Labour spent a lot of time competing with the anti-austerity parties, Plaid Cymru and uh, SNP, and the debates was an important mechanism by which that happened. The Conservatives in the last 10 days or so have gone in for making some unfunded public expenditure commitments and tax cuts as well. So that narrative of the Liberal Democrats being more fiscally responsible than Labour and fairer than the Conservatives and serious about the deficit is one that has some traction because the other parties have given them that space. And of course, the irony is that Nick Clegg was not part of the challenger debate that we had last week between the opposition party leaders. David Cameron wasn't there by choice. Nick Clegg wasn't there because he wasn't invited. And yet he seems to have done quite well out of that, Finbar. Um, He seems to have done quite well out of it. The interesting thing for me is that the calculation that Cameron and the Conservatives made about that debate has backfired. As I was watching the debate unfold, it looked like almost the first meeting of the new coalition or supply and confidence government happening on stage. There was a moment when... Although Nigel Farage won't be part of the coalition. He won't be included, as you can see from the ending uh, images when the three female leaders hugged and then shook hands with Miliband and completely ignored him. Uh, He he was too busy glowering at the left-wing audience. And giving out to them. But there was a moment where I was looking at the screen. I almost wanted to be able to tap Miliband on the shoulder and go, stop trying to be so forceful and divisive and attacking because the people can almost see you guys working together. It's almost happening in real time. And there was a decision to be made there. He wanted to continue to say majority Labour government fighting against the Tories, holding off Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP. But I'm not sure that there was a better decision to be made to be slightly softer and show how that could happen right from that moment in time. If I could just disagree, Finbar, I think that would be complete political suicide. We shall see. Thank you to Helen Finbar and Chris, to our guest Sherry Kutu, and for production to Hannah Critchlow, Francis Durnley and Lizzie Presser. To get in touch with us, just use the Twitter hashtag electionpodcast. Next week, my guest will be the senior American diplomat Richard Haas, who is president of the Council on Foreign Relations and was special envoy to the Northern Ireland peace process. Foreign policy hasn't played much of a role in this election campaign. I'll be talking to him about some of the big foreign policy choices that will be facing any future British government. I'll also be talking to a group of first-time student voters. Are they going to vote? And if not, what's putting them off? 
Join us again next time. My name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge University Podcast Election. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.